Hello and welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? That's a podcast that's aimed at you, maybe, probably you. That's folks like Neo who in the Matrix realize, hey, something's not right. There's a deep sense of dislocation floating around. That's this podcast. We're trying to address that by talking about heavy things lightly. We're going to use theology, history, philosophy, and years of deeply immersive experiences in foreign cultures to figure out, hey, how did we get here? Our pod goes beyond rhetorical rabbits. Those are quickly reproduced media memes that make big money for big media. We're going to look instead at cultural phenomenon and the things inside there, the deep truths. And we're going to look at it through new world and old world perspectives. So join me, John Hears, our team of First Things Foundation Field Workers, as we wonder aloud, uh, yeah, why are we talking about rabbits? This is episode four. This is the 4th of July. And this is the talk about marriage, gay marriage, and body parts. Here's a stat that's going to drive today's podcast. Hopefully by the end of this podcast, we see kind of what is going on with the concept of new world marriage as per the old world philosophies. That's our goal. Like what's going on? with marriage and gender conversations and how did we get here? But here's a stat that's going to drive today's podcast, and it's just so damn interesting. And I bet you didn't know this stuff. First, did you know that there is a gay-friendly travel index? Maybe you did. I, I did not know that. That's not known by lots of people. What this gay travel friendly index or gay friendly travel index does is it ranks countries for how friendly countries are to gay people. It's published by the advocate. That's an LGBTQ plus friendly magazine. They use criteria to come up with this index. Some of the criteria sounds like this, right? Same sex marriage prohibitions give you a low score gay rights enshrined in law like the right to adopt if you're a same-sex couple, that gives you high scores, right? The best score you can get, the raw score is a 10. The worst score currently is a negative 14. And they ranked 194 countries. It's a lot. It's like pretty much all of them. Do you know who scores a 10 on the Gay Friendly Travel Index? If you guessed Europe, the light countries... You're right. Light countries. If you've been listening to this pod, you know that's a a lot of what we talk about, okay? European enlightenment. That's a thing that happened. And it happened in history circa 1650, really all throughout the 17th century. And what happened is, at least the thesis in this pod is, is light thinking or new world thinking or the cult of the light people, that thing became a way of life, a culture. And guess what? New world light thinking countries and cultures dipped in the enlightenment. They score like champs on the gay friendly travel index. All right. Here's your top six gay friendly countries. Number six, Belgium. Number five, Austria. Number four, Sweden. Number three, Portugal. 
Number two, Canada. And number one, the number one gay-friendly travel index country, Australia. That's right. These are all light people. They're very, quote, enlightened people. And what else? What are they? They're also white people. Every one of these nations is majority-dominant Caucasoid. Now, I'm using Caucasoid here as a way, the same way the race doctors and the eugenics peddlers of the European Enlightenment used it. Caucasoid. It's based on some phenotypes, racial categories, right? Right? We just know them as white people, Caucasoids. And they seem to be really kind to gay people. Want to know who's at the bottom? Way down at negative 14? Me too. Let's do it. Let's do the let's do the bottom six or seven. Want to? Let's start with number seven. The number seven most unfriendly place for gay people. Jamaica. Number six. Russia. Number five. Yemen. Number four. Saudi Arabia. The number three most unfriendly place for gay people, United Arab Emirates. Number two, Iran. And the worst place on earth, if you want to travel as a gay person, Somalia. How interesting is that? Of those countries on this list, only one is majority white. Russia. Right. Now, you got to buy the term white, right? While well, all the others are brown and black. But wait, if you've been listening to this pod, you also know there's another way to think about these countries. Not white or black, but you just think of them as old world. Think of them as, quote, unenlightened people. Or as the light people historians termed them, dark age people. You see? These are the folks from way back when, and the light people are the folks from today. See how convenient that is? And this issue of sex and gender and marriage, man, it's like light. It's like a lightning bolt that gives clarity to how the world is really divided. Okay. It's really not divided by race. It's divided by culture, and in particular, the new world culture versus the old. Now, what about the United States? That's a light country, for sure. Comes in at 57. So we're sort of like a backward light country. It's interesting, right? The United States scored a raw score of 1 out of 10. Australia and Canada's raw score, 10 Somalia, Iran, negative 14. Ouch. So what does it have to do with marriage? And what should we take away from this? Right? Let's take a look by going back into history. Let's let's get informed, or at least informed in a certain way, about why is this happening? Do you know what an obelisk is? The Egyptians 
They knew it. They kind of invented them. They built them. Big, giant, tall, beautiful obelisks. Those are those heavy pointed monoliths quarried out of these fine pink granite quarries found in Aswan. That's the city of trade in Egypt. It's the gateway to black Africa. The earliest obelisks were raised at a place called On. That's the sacred ceremonial city known by its Greek name today, Heliopsis, which means city of sun. But the Egyptians knew it as the city of the sun god, Ra. The obelisk represents a ray of sun. It's jutting up, but it's also jutting down. Okay? It goes both ways. It's a type of penetration into the darkness. That's the way they understood it. It's the thing that enters and offers. The obelisk was for the ancient Egyptian a type of origins tale told in granite. And it was, in its essence, phallus. The thing that penetrates. And this obelisk idea isn't just found in Egypt. You can find it all over in history. You can find one celebrating women, ironically, in South Africa at a place called Blumenfontein. You can find a whole set of them at the holy city of Aksum in northern Ethiopia. They call them steli there, but they look exactly the same. If you were alive before Columbus and chilling out in, say, what we call today Peru, you could have seen Incas put one up and not just one. You can find this kind of monument in about every culture. And if you look carefully, you can find one of them juxtaposed some sort of dome. Look in the show notes. There's pictures there of this stuff. Right? There's the picture of St. Peter's Basilica in Italy. You'll find the dome of St. Peter's facing off with its brother obelisk at the Vatican. Check out the Washington Monument. Some of you already know this. It sits opposite the Capitol. And the Capitol has that massive 9 million pound dome. They're like staring each other down. Check out most mosques around the world. Places where Muslims worship. There you'll see a dome where people do their salat, their prayers. And alongside, inevitably, you'll find the minaret. That's a perch for the muazin, the the caller, the chanter of prayer, the one who calls people to prayer. And the minaret is the masculine counter to the feminine dome. You see, the dome is another manifestation of archetype. It's a type of womb, a type of femininity, an architectural incarnation of that which receives. The obelisk is the incarnation of that which penetrates. The dome is that which receives. The obelisk is that which penetrates. In the Christian East, you can see this in church architecture as well. Churches are domed. And nearly always, the Theotokos, which means the God-bearer, some people will know her as the Virgin Mary, well, she's depicted above the altar, enveloping, really enveloping the altar, protecting the contents as a type of womb, which is what she obviously was and known 
to be the Theotokos, the bearer of God. And what's on the altar? Christ. Christ is the one who penetrates the world, who brings light to the darkness, right? The one who gives life within the bosom of the God-bearer, phallus and womb. These are archetypes known to humankind for like ever, thousands and thousands of years. And it's so quaint. It's so dustbinishly cool. Like, you know, relevant on a quiz night or something. How does any of this help us understand this gay-friendly travel list or an old and new world stuff? And how does it, most of all, how does it help me in my life? What's the relevance here, bro? Well, it's because of this. You see, the country you live in is on that list. And it comes with a lot of baggage. And the fastest way to get from the bottom of the gay-friendly travel index to the top is to pass a law that says men can marry men and women can marry women. Do that and you aren't Somalia anymore. Pass that law and, well, you can get all the way up to at least 57 where the United States is. I mean, come on, Somalia, you're 194. Yemen, man, you're coming in at 192. Do a gay marriage law. Get out of the doldrums. Catch up already. Let's go. Rethink marriage a little bit and get with the program. But these old world cats won't do it. And deep down in that reticence lies the dome and the phallus. See, living over in many old world countries, as we do when we do our work, these folks, they just can't figure out how two phalluses can make for a union. They can try lots of Western things like cash app and cell phones. I mean, go to Kenya. Those cats know how to use that stuff. But the two dome idea, phallus meets phallus and uh, they live happily ever after. It's They can't figure it out. See, they keep thinking like someone building a cool Lego town, right? Some Legos fit with other Legos. Some don't. So, after being overseas and seeing lots of this old world stuff, right? Being in these old world gay travel index loser countries, I've come to realize that regular people over there, regular people now, watch out for politicians. But regular people over there, they're not pissed off about gay people, they know people who are attracted to people of the same sex. But gay marriage, they don't understand how it fits. They don't get it. Like on a real simple level. And there's a reason for this. There's a reason why the marriage thing messes stuff up. So let me try this for a second. Let's tell the story from West Africa and then get into some more light people history. Here's the story. It's, it's not really a story. It's a recounting of a friend in our friendship and something he told me. His name is Bakari, which is Abubakar. And he and I sat together a lot. He was a cool dude, tough guy. Didn't know how to read or write, but man, he could fix anything in the village. And he took care of me, he fixed me. And often we would sit and talk about life almost every night in the village, no electricity, sitting there and drinking palm wine and lots of tea. 
And he told me this once when I asked him about marriage, because see, in that village and as many Sahelian uh, Islamic uh, African countries, you, you can marry more than one wife. And he told me, or I asked him, what's that about? And he told me, here's the deal, Jomaga. That's what he called me. The first wife is the one that the man tries to get based on her baby-making ability. Like, this is true. He would say this. Like, her hips. He was unabashed. I mean, he was a dude from Mali in the 1990s. He said, yeah, the first one, hips. You got to make sure she can have lots of kids. The second one, yeah, most people around here, the guys, they, they want their second wife to be really pretty, easy on the eyes. The third wife, well, if you got three wives, that means you probably have a lot of fields. And if you have fields, it means you're probably doing pretty good. You're pretty rich. So the third wife, that's, uh, yeah, she shows that you're a successful man. And the fourth wife is religious, Joe Magan. That's what he'd say. It's religious. If you got four wives, you're like Muhammad. And that's good. You're very pious. You see what's going on here? It's like all the various aspects of anybody's sort of desires for marriage are all wrapped up in these four places. It's nuts. And did you hear about the second wife, the pretty wife? When he talked about that, he would always talk in a way that I kind of recognized sitting there as a light person. He kind of talked about it in the way that you might recognize. It had to do with love or best put. It had to do with romantic feelings. I think he had him for a second wife. He didn't have a second wife yet. Now, my other friends, another guy named Dada, he did. And he said the exact same thing. There was something about romance in that second wife. And I realize today that's our new world light cult reason for getting married. Love, marriage is our marriage. But for Bakri, even today, it's just one version of marriage for him. In fact, for him, it was not even the most important one. But it was the most important version for someone named Jane. Jane Austen. Pride and Prejudice Jane Austen. Mr. Darcy Jane Austen. Elizabeth Bennet Jane Austen. If you don't know who I'm talking about, first of all, sorry. That's a really good story and also sorry for sounding like such an idiot when I'm saying these things, but I'm just telling you, Mr. Darcy, like, is the perfect Victorian English love story. Think mansions and, like, some social distancing style dancing parties where people barely touching, if at all, wearing ascots, high collars. Mr. Darcy, that story, that's Jane Austen's world. And she was a light person, the light person extraordinaire. She was out to document the changing marriage norms in England and really all of Europe. And she was going to tell the story in this novel, right, about people who are beginning to choose their marriage mates based on love or what the Greeks called eros and what many cultures just sort of associate with lust or romance Austin's contemporaries called this new type of marriage the love match. It was a new thing 200 years ago. This freedom to fall in love and get married, see, that was a new thing. 
but not the fall in love part. Please don't read history like a dummy. Okay. Very few things have changed regarding the story of the human belly or as we talk about the human passion center. Okay. People always have, quote, fallen in love. That's always happened. But Austin was trying to do something really different. And that was to show that the love thing could be, and here's the key, should be a basis for marriage, a foundation. And man, she did a damn good job of showing this. It convinced the light people. But by 19, uh, 1813, when she wrote it, they didn't need much convincing because for a 100 years, light people, Europeans, had gotten a steady diet of individualism, both from Descartes and from the giant Protestant Revolution. See, the light people were on a trajectory toward love marriages because they had ingested the Kool-Aid known as I think, therefore I am. And don't worry, you don't need anybody to tell you what the Bible means. You can figure it out for yourself. This Kool-Aid, and by the way, I like Kool-Aid. This Kool-Aid, it was in the water and it was changing people's perceptions of themselves. And guess what? It created today what we know as this term agency. Agency. It's everywhere in the universities, the notion. You hear it in politics, social sciences. You hear it coming from Don Lemon. Okay, agency, as my daughter, who is a college-age student, likes to remind me, is the capacity of individuals to act independently and to make their own free choices, Papa. And these free choices, they get stymied. Now, she doesn't say stymied. I'm saying stymied, because that's an that's like an old dude name or word, isn't it? But she's saying these free choices, the ability to make free choices, they get stymied by things like social class and religion and gender, ethnicity, ability, customs. All of this stymies a person's agency. It limits their freedom. And she says that's a bad thing. Agency. It's deeply related to modern marriage. But I think what I really mean to say it's deep related to modern divorce. It's actually the cause of it. But even more important than divorce, divorce is like old school now. The more important concept is that people just aren't getting married. Right? Serious declines in marriage are happening all across the light world. I mean, look at this. The countries that have seen the largest dip in marriage rates over the last 10 years, can you guess them? I'll give them to you. The number one country in terms of marriage dip, fewer and fewer people getting married. The number one country, Belgium. Number two, Italy. Number three, France. Number four, Sweden. Guess what? All of these countries are in the top 10 for being great destinations for gay people. Right? There are only five countries on this list, and you can find it in the show notes. There are only five countries of 50 million or more people who have had a marriage surge in the last 10 years. You want to know what they are? Number three, biggest marriage surge, Philippines. Number two, Vietnam. And the number one, the number one place to go if you want to see a lot of people getting married in 2020, the Congo. Yeah. How do you think these three countries rated on the gay, friendly, 
travel index. Yeah, not very high. Philippines, 75. Vietnam, 76. And Congo, a very unfriendly place for gay folks, but a place where a lot of people are getting married, came in at 129. So to recap, the places that gay folks feel most welcome are also the places where traditional marriage is on the decrease. The places where phallus and womb buildings are built to still represent phallus and womb are the places where gay folks don't want to go. They prefer the places where the love match made its debut. The place where marriage wasn't about parts, but about predilections and desires and passions. And this is the divide. It's not black and white. This is the divide we talk about on this show, on this pod. I hope you're seeing why this divide exists. It's a divide of culture, of the light people versus the, oh, that's interesting. The dark people? Yes, that's exactly what they're called in history. You've heard of the dark ages. I wonder why they're the dark ages. Yeah, because the thinking of those people is dark. It's not about race, man. This brings me to my final point. For old worlders, gay marriage isn't a thing. Because marriage is a thing. For new worlders, gay marriage is no big deal because marriage is no big deal. I mean, isn't marriage just about love? You've heard that. Why do I need a piece of paper for that? And this insouciance about marriage in the new world is the direct result of a type of thinking, a new world light people cult kind of thinking. The kind of thinking that creates the notion of agency and individual preference. It's the kind of culture and the only kind of culture that can create the notion that whatever I think I am is actually what I am. Phallus or dome be damned. And there's no turning back. Marriage and dating and gender and all of it are fluid, not because people are making it that way. It's not because they're marching. I went to a BLM march. That's, that's the outcome that you're seeing the result of something that's been going on for 300 years. You're seeing the baby after it's been in the womb. That's what these marches are about. BLM less so, but definitely BLM, LGBTQ marches, trans. This is the birth of what has been brewing. Okay, LGBTQ people aren't changing society. It's because people are simply living out their new faith in the light God, which is the God of the mind, the God of the self. And that cult, that God, that's a powerful deity, yo. I mean, think about the computing power the light people have developed, their rational selves. And think about how powerful that tool can be when it comes to justifying emotions and desires, the belly. Old worlders were scared of these twin towers of power. They feared a belly unchecked by a soul, 
or a heart. The best phrase is the eye of the heart. They feared a belly unchecked by a soul. And they feared, right, the rational mind's ability to justify the belly. I mean, who hasn't done that? I really want that second piece of cake. And tomorrow, if I get up early, I can exercise. And that means I will have actually burned off 10 extra calories so I can have the piece of cake right now. I have made my decision. We justify our passions all the time using our rational mind. One usually beats out the other. I love people who think like, no, just, just let your reason lead you. Really? The reason reacts. It reacts to the physical world, and that includes the belly. So the older were, were afraid of that equation, right? They were afraid of humans without chests. That's a C.S. Lewis term, if you've read his books. These are people who didn't have this spirit in them located in their heart, right? The old world was afraid, but fear is bad. The old world is afraid and fear is bad. And in fact, fear leads to ugly anger and often hate and retribution. And that's not good either, right? Think Uganda and the death penalty for gay people. Come on now. You see, one doesn't get off the hook because of the other, And so maybe we'll do a podcast on that. But look, there's a serious battle out there, man. Drawing the lines and sweeping away the silliness. Well, I hope that helps to quell some of the anger all this change creates. That's what we're trying to do here. That's why we're asking, why are we talking about rabbits again? Let's talk about heavy things lightly. All right, that's the show today. Shenny's Gaggy Marjos. That means to you the victory. That's often said at a KP table in a place called the Georgian Republic. By the way, they're 93 on the gay-friendly travel index. Not very high, Georgia. But maybe that's a podcast because, man, I love that place. That's our pod for today. Thanks for coming along. Why are we talking about rabbits? Watar is produced by Andrew Schwark and Daniel Paternos. Our pod is brought to you by the creators of First Things, a nonprofit that lives and works in some of the world's most impoverished places. We immerse there in order to create momentum for local change makers. Those are people who want to build their vision for a better life. We call them impresarios. We find them and then move resources and expertise their way. Your love for us Hit us up with that review. Your love for us helps us to serve others. So, Nakvamdis, hasta luego, kambufo. That's what Bakari and I would say in Mali. That's Bambara, kambufo. And peace out. <laughs>